Celine for in that passage. Uh, it's great to welcome you. My name is Pete. I'm one of the pastors here. And we'll, uh, over the, the summer, we often just preach through a handful of psalms, uh, looking at the praise songs of the Old Testament. And so for the next couple of Sundays, uh, today and the next Sunday, uh, in between finishing Habakkuk, which we did last week, and then restarting Luke's Gospel, which we'll do at the start of September, uh, we're just going to be looking at these two psalms, Psalms 9 and 10. Uh, so let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Our God, you reign forever. Our hope, our strong deliverer. How we praise you, Lord, that you are the defender of the weak, that you comfort those in need, that you are enthroned as king over the universe. And Lord, we we pray that as our king, as we come before your throne of grace, that you would speak to us by the power of your spirit, that you would give us confidence and resilience to trust you and to find our refuge in you at all times. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Do you ever get the feeling that things in our world are just out of control? Globally, that often feels the case, doesn't it? You read the news about wildfires raging in Canada and Hawaii and Europe. There seems to be more and more extreme weather, heat, rain, wind out of our control. Across the world, there is international strife and tumult. Wars rage in all corners of the globe, and the so-called world powers are powerless to do anything about it. Injustice, oppression, violence are rife all over the world in every single society. And the police in every society seem incapable of controlling even the most basic of antisocial behavior. Across the world, our brothers and sisters, our Christians are persecuted. And the authorities are impotent to do anything. Earlier this week, I read a story about armed mobs in Islamabad. Uh, attacking churches and homes belonging to Christians. And the authorities say, we're doing the best we can to control the mob. But the burnt-out buildings betray the fact that they are out of control. And nationally, it feels the same as well, doesn't it? Our government has talked a lot recently about getting inflation under control, this money-related phenomenon caused by events out of our control, like a war in Ukraine and a global pandemic making prices go up and up and up, squeezing family budgets. And the way that they talk about it, it seems almost like this wild animal that the government and the Bank of England are desperately trying to get in a cage. But they cannot control it. And it's true personally as well, isn't it? We are blown about by circumstances beyond our control. Sometimes it feels like life is just something that happens to you. You're always reacting to the next thing that happens, maybe dealing with disappointing exam results or the bad news from the doctor after a routine blood test or the phone call out of the blue from a family member or friend in crisis. There's always something else that just comes up and you never feel like you've got life under control. It can make you wonder, can't it? Is anyone driving this thing? Is anyone in control? 
even as a Christian sometimes, it can make you wonder, you know, is God really there? And if he is, well, has he fallen asleep at the wheel or something? How can we live with confidence and resilience in a world like that? That's the question in Psalms 9 and 10. And I say 9 and 10 because there's good reasons to think that these two Psalms that we're going to look at today and Paul is going to be preaching on next week on Psalm 10 are meant to be read together. So as I said at the beginning, we often look at the Psalms in the summer because sort of people can be away at camp or on holiday and then they're back the next week. But most of the Psalms, they work pretty well as singles. They can be listened to on their own. That's helpful over the summer. And, but the Psalms also work as albums. Now I know with Spotify, you don't listen to albums anymore unless you're like me and you still sort of buy them on iTunes and listen to an album. But still today, music artists, they work hard to arrange the individual songs on an album. They're they're deliberately and purposefully put together to tell a story, to flow together, to complement one another. And that's definitely true for the Psalms and certainly true for Psalms 9 and 10. It's possible that at one point they were actually one song Uh, So Psalm 10, you can see, if you look at it, if you've still got one of these church Bibles open, it'll help you to keep it open because you better see what I'm talking about. Psalm 10 doesn't have a title, but every other psalm in book one does. So some people think, well, that's some indication they might have been one psalm together. The other is, um, if you look at Psalm 9, it has a little letter A next to it, and that refers you to a footnote at the bottom, which tells you Psalms 9 and 10, they were originally, or they might originally have been, one single acrostic poem. If you remember back to primary school when you did poetry, and uh, the first letter begins with, the first line begins with the letter A, and the next letter, the next line begins with the letter B, and the next line begins with the letter C. It's a very simple form of poetry. And uh, Psalms 9 and 10 have that pattern through the Hebrew alphabet, except there's a break in the middle of Psalm 10 where it sort of stops and there's a few letters missing and then it picks it up again towards the end of Psalm 10. It's a broken acrostic. But there are links, there are thematic links, there are language links, there's lots of similar language. I think what's happening is Psalms 9 and 10, they're looking at the same world, the same world that so often seems out of control, but they're looking at it from two complementary perspectives. I think it's structured a bit like this, a bit like a sandwich. So uh, I want you to think of the beginning of Psalm 10 as a bit like the filling in the middle of the sandwich. At the start of Psalm 10, David looks at the world and says, well, it certainly looks out of control. Worse, in times of trouble, God sometimes seems to stand far off, hiding his face. All the while, the wicked hunt down the weak, thinking that God doesn't notice, that they will never be called to account. Sometimes it does seem like the wicked will get away with it. And David asks in Psalm 10 verse 1, why, Lord? Why do you seem far off in times of trouble? Why do the wicked prosper? But Psalm 10 ends by recalling the perspective of Psalm 9. It's the bread around the filling of the sandwich. Psalm 9 and and the end of Psalm 10 say, well, it might look like the world is out of control, 
Like there's no one at the wheel, no one sat on the throne. And certainly for a while it might seem like the wicked will get away with it, as if evil might triumph. But Psalm 9 and the end of Psalm 10, they contain this confident assurance that whatever it may seem, God is on the throne. Psalm 9 verse 7, the Lord reigns forever. Psalm 10 verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. God is in control and he will bring human history to a just conclusion in his time, in his way, according to his purposes. Wicked mortal men will not triumph. Good will win in the end, even if for a little while now, it seems like the wicked will triumph. And in Psalm 9, David holds out that truth for us to cling to. Like a a tuning fork for a piano. Whatever is going on in life, it always plays the same note. And so this is our certainty in an often uncertain, chaotic world. God is king. The Lord reigns. And knowing that enables us to live with confidence and resilience. And to help us to to get that in our heads, David gives us two pictures, two images to focus our attention on that reality. To give us something rock solid to stand on in the shifting sands of this world. And the first picture is this, the throne. That's the first picture, the throne. If you, um, if you listen to Psalm album one, sort of one after the other after the other, the first bunch of Psalms, if you read them one after the other, they can begin to feel quite repetitive, actually. Basically because David is always surrounded by enemies and opposition and always crying out to God. And Psalm nine is no different. Verse 13 in his current, is his current situation. Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy. Lift me up from the gates of death. Yet again, David is persecuted by enemies in distress and almost at death's door. Which makes the start of Psalm 9 even more surprising. Right? Because in verses 1 and 2, David begins by praising God. I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your name, O Most High. David doesn't wait for thankfulness to just come upon him. He's not waiting to be caught up in a spirit of praise. Like Habakkuk, which we've been looking at for the last few weeks, regardless of his circumstances, David has decided God is to be praised. I will give thanks. I will be glad. I will sing. And it's not grudging because of that. It is wholehearted praise. Everything in him is gratitude to God. And each of us owes that same response to God for who he is and for what he's done. Actually, our failure in gratitude to God is one of the most devastating aspects of our sin. So much of the time we take God and his gifts for granted. And we only notice them when they're taken away. 
At which point, the absence of gratitude is replaced by the presence of grumbling. But David says to us, regardless of your situation, look at who God is. Be glad in him. Rejoice in him. In his character of goodness and beauty of love and righteousness. Look at who God is and look at what God has done. Remember all his wonderful deeds. Remembrance is at the heart of our thanksgiving. Um, If you stop remembering, you stop worshipping. That's why God gave us the Lord's Supper, which we're going to share towards the end of the service, is to help us remember. To help us remember the death of Jesus in our place so that we can remember and so we can praise him. So that's how David starts in verses 1 and 2, just praising and giving thanks to God. And then in verses 3 to 6, David moves from the general to the specific. As he recounts all God's wonderful deeds, telling others what God has done, there is one specific event that David wants to thank God for. He's describing this past event when his enemies turned back, when they stumbled and perished as God came to the rescue. When God rebuked, destroyed, blotted out the names of his enemies forever. Now we, we don't know for, for definite what event David is talking about. But I think he's referring to the end of Absalom's rebellion. So if you flick back a few pages, find Psalm 3. In the title of Psalm 3, David tells us it was written when he fled from his son Absalom. Those events are described in 2 Samuel 15. Basically what happened, David's son Absalom led a military coup against David, forcing him to flee Jerusalem and run for his life. And though David doesn't say, I think Psalms 4 to 6 are also meant to be read against that backdrop. And I think now in Psalm 9, David is looking back at the way that God ended that rebellion, quashed it restored David to his rightful place as the anointed king. It would make sense of what David says in verse 4. You have upheld my right and my cause. David is the rightful king of Israel. And so in quashing Absalom's rebellion, God has upheld his right. And it would also make sense of verse 13. Because Almost as soon as David had dealt with that internal rebellion from Absalom, he had to deal with another one. And then external opposition from the Philistines. He thought, David is weak. Let's get him. Enemies surrounding him straight away. But there's also, I think, a little hint in the title. Psalm 9, if you can see, it's written to the death, to the tune of the death of the son. I think referring to the death of Absalom. Like I said, we don't know any of that for definite but I reckon that's what's going on in the background. In any case, what David is doing in verses 3 to 6 is he is looking back, looking back at God's past deliverance from the hands of the wicked. He's seeing God brought me through, thanking God for that, celebrating God's just judgment against those rebels. You have upheld my right and my cause, sitting enthroned as the righteous judge. And it's here in verse 4 that David first brings God's throne into our view. 
I don't know if you watched the coronation of King Charles II. Uh, if you did, you would have seen him enthroned on this chair. It's been the coronation throne for more than 700 years. And when Charles sat on that throne, he received in one hand the orb and in the other hand the scepter. And the crown was placed on his head. Those objects, they are symbolic of his right to rule. Symbolic of power and authority to reign over the United Kingdom with justice. Now, in Charles's case, they are only symbolic. The government exercises power and authority on his behalf. The courts execute justice on his behalf. But the symbol's clear still, isn't it? This throne is a symbol of power and authority, of rule and reign and justice. And it's the same for God. As David looks back to this past instance of God's judgment on his enemies, David sees that's a sign of something that is always true. Verse 7, the Lord reigns forever. That's what David is clinging to right now. In the present when he is yet again surrounded by enemies, when the world and his life seem so out of control. The Lord reigns forever. That is true all the time. Whatever is going on in your life that feels out of control, God is enthroned in heaven. He has not abdicated. He has not fallen asleep. He is not caught by surprise. He rules and reigns sovereignly in control over all the chaos and confusion of this world. And I know sometimes that's hard to believe. You look at the world around you in your own life. It's what David says in Psalm 10. But it's still true. The Lord reigns forever. Cling to that when your life feels chaotic. When Everything that you stand on feels slippery. Stand on that rock. The Lord reigns forever. Then in verses 7 and 8, David tells us that what God has done for him personally, he will do in the future universally. So this past judgment on Absalom and his rebellion is a trailer for a future judgment when God will judge the whole world with equity. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the people with equity. The end of Absalom's rebellion, it proves that God is a righteous judge. It proves that one day the whole world will see and experience the the glorious reign and the justice of God. That's not to say that God is not active for judgment now. He is. In verses 15 and 16, David describes the way that even now, even in this life, the Lord is known by his acts of justice. And I don't know if you were the kind of teenager I was. 
You ever got an elastic band between your finger and your thumb and tried to shoot it at one of your siblings and it ends up snapping back and pinging you instead? That's what's going on in verse 15. People fall into the pit. They dig for others. They are caught in the net. They hid to capture others. They are ensnared by the work of their own hands. To some extent, even in this life, people suffer the consequence of their own evil. It boomerangs back on them. Because this is God's universe. He is in charge. And you reap what you sow. But primarily, this judgment looks forward to a future day. The day of the Lord. There will be a day when God arises, when all the nations are judged in his presence. I know the idea of God's judgment is not necessarily a popular one. It's one that some people would rather put to one side. But God is righteous and he is good. That's why he judges sin. And that's why he calls the guilty to account. It's a great comfort. Think about all the evil and injustice in the world. If, that ne- if people got away with it, if God never called that to account. God promises that even what is done in secret will be exposed. Even what is done in the dark will be brought into the light of God's judgment. Wickedness will be punished. Wrongs will be put right. The wicked will not get away with it forever. That's what David is calling for at the end in verses 19 and 20. He's saying to God, do that now. I can't wait for that day. It's calling for immediate, decisive action for judgment, not to let the proud plans of mortal men prevail, but the just and good purposes of God. He, he says to God, let your enemies realize that they're not God, but you are. Let them realize they're just frail, mortal men made from dust and destined for dust. Because that's the destiny of the wicked, verse 17. The wicked go down to the realm of the dead, all the nations that forget God. For creatures to forget our creator, for us to forget God, is at the heart of our human rebellion. And God is just. Those who forget God, who live without reference to him, who live as if he doesn't exist, will be forgotten by God. Sobering thought though, isn't it? Because we hate to be forgotten. I don't know what you're like on your birthday. Someone forgets it and you see them and you're, you're wearing your birthday badge and they still don't say have a birthday. You feel invisible, don't you? And yet striking, isn't it, how quickly we forget people in this life. I bet most of us probably don't even know the names of our great-grandparents, let alone much about them. Even powerful people, even successful people are so quickly forgotten by us. But how much worse it is to be forgotten by God eternally. But here's the flip side of that in verse 18. But God will never forget the needy. The hope of the afflicted will never perish. It's terrible to be forgotten, but it's great to be remembered. When someone remembers your birthday, even though you weren't wearing your birthday badge. When they call, it's a wonderful expression of love and care. And God's promise is that he does not forget his people. He always remembers his needy people. 
It's a lovely expression, isn't it? The needy. That's who God remembers. God does not help those who help themselves. No. He helps those who know that they cannot help themselves. God helps those who need him and who know they need him, who come to him with empty hands to receive everything that he offers. And God invites us to be needy before him, to to come to him and cry out for his help. And our need is all we can bring. It's the only qualification you need to come to Jesus, just to know that you need him. You don't need to bring anything else. In fact, if you do, it will stop you receiving Jesus. But if you bring nothing but need, empty hands, God will meet you with the fullness of his grace. Listen, if everything else in your life has failed you, if everything else has let you down, forgotten you, come to Jesus because he will not. But right now, We don't always see that. Right now, we don't always see God's justice, only more human injustice. Sometimes it can feel like God does forget his needy people. Sometimes it seems as though the hope of the afflicted has perished, as evil triumphs in our world. But here's the message of Psalm 9. In light of that past, the future is certain. The same almighty God sits on the throne and the Lord reigns forever. Sitting enthroned as the righteous judge and he never forgets. He never forgets his needy people. And so we always have hope, confidence, resilience, even in our affliction. That's the throne. The second picture is the stronghold. The stronghold. David's experience of being rescued by God from Absalom's rebellion, it proves that God does not abandon those who seek him. So all through Psalms 3 to 6, David is oppressed, praying, asking God to deliver him and execute justice, and now he has. And David therefore knows from his own experience the truth of verse 9. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. We human beings, we know how to build a decent stronghold. This is one of my favorite ones. I think it's in the Alps somewhere. A stronghold is a mighty fortress, a place of total security with impenetrable defenses, somewhere that you can retreat to where you will be absolutely safe from harm. It's the castle in the battle, the harbor in the storm. That is what the Lord is like for his people. Now that does not mean that you will escape trouble. No, because the Lord is a refuge in times of trouble. It does not mean you will escape physical harm. No, because verse 12, the Lord is the one who avenges the blood of his people. It does not mean you will escape affliction. No, verse 12, his people cry out to God in their affliction. But it does mean that when you do, 
you will not be ignored. You will be heard by God because God never forsakes those who trust in him. That's what gives David the confidence to cry out in verse 13. See, Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy. Be gracious to me. Lift me up from the gates of death. In Psalm 10, verse 11, David's enemies tell him that God covers his face and does not see. David says, Lord, see. And he says that because David knows the Lord's name. That, that is, he knows his character, that he always sees his people afflicted, that he always hears their cry, and so he can trust God that he will deliver him and lift him up, just as he did before. It's true in life, isn't it? We're often brought low in sickness, in sin, in despair, in temptation, ultimately in death. But if you know God, if you know his name, the Lord, if you know his character, gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, you can trust him. And he will lift you up. That's what it means for us to take refuge in the Lord as our stronghold. It is to keep trusting him, even in times of trouble and affliction. To keep clinging to him, to keep praying to him as king, even when your life feels out of control. There will be times when you feel like David in Psalm 10 verse 1. Like the Lord is standing far off in times of trouble, hiding his face. In those moments, what should you do? You should do what we sang earlier. Rest on his unchanging grace. Clinging to his promise. Knowing. Knowing he is a stronghold in times of trouble. Knowing he will never leave you nor forsake you. Knowing God never forgets the needy. And if you know Jesus, you can know that for certain. Jesus is the son by whose death we have been delivered from our enemies. By the death of Jesus, our enemy, the devil, has been disarmed and defeated. His rebellion crushed. Not through the death of a wayward, rebellious son, but through the death of the perfect, obedient son of God. And Jesus is how we can know for certain that the hope of the afflicted will never perish. Jesus is the one who, though afflicted and persecuted to death by his enemies, was heard by God, lifted up from the gates of death to resurrection life. And Jesus promises, if you trust in him, he will not forget you. He will raise you up with him on the last day. Jesus is the Lord who is right now enthroned in heaven, who reigns forever. He is the man God has appointed to judge the whole world with justice. Of that he has given proof by raising him from the dead. And so God commands everyone everywhere to repent, to trust in him, to take refuge in him.
from the coming judgment. Two pictures. The throne. The Lord reigns forever. A stronghold. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. So how should we respond? Well, we respond with verse 11. Sing the praises of the Lord. Sing the praises of the Lord enthroned in Zion and proclaim among the nations what he has done. We're going to stand and sing together now about our faithful God who is a refuge in times of trouble who lifts us up when we're brought low. Let's sing together and the band are going to lead us.